We know how many of you love the music on the Sleepy Bookshelf. Well, now you can listen to it on our sister podcast, Deep Sleep Sounds, while you sleep, work, study, or relax. Just follow the link in the show notes for Deep Sleep Sounds. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I am so glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening we'll be returning to To The Lighthouse, but before we do, let's give ourselves some time to be present. Lie or sit still, uncrossing your legs, keeping your arms by your sides. Close your eyes and breathe evenly and naturally. Without changing your breath, move your focus to the air coming into your body and leaving. What is happening to your body while you breathe? And how does it make you feel? As you inhale and exhale, maybe say quietly to yourself, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. You can use this to stay present. And if any thoughts creep into your head, just acknowledge them and let them slide away, refocusing on your breath and remaining still and peaceful. In our last episode, we met some of the Ramsey family, Mrs. Ramsey a caring mother of eight children, her husband, a straightforward, factual man, their youngest son, James, sensitive little soul, three of their daughters, Prue, Nancy, and Rose, Mr. Charles Tansley, Mr. Ramsey's young assistant, or the atheist, as the children referred to him, He was described as a rather miserable fellow. James wanted to go and visit the lighthouse, which Mrs. Ramsay had agreed to do the following day. But Mr. Ramsay foretold of bad weather, which Mr. Tansley reinforced. Mrs. Ramsay continually soothed James by suggesting they may be wrong and they could wait and see. Later, as Mr. Tansley seemed alone, Mrs. Ramsay politely asked if he would like to accompany her to town. She visited local women in need of support. He agreed, and while she did think he was boring, he shared some information about his childhood that made her warm to him. Meanwhile, the young Mr. Tansley managed to convince himself of a complete infatuation with the old woman. He found himself gazing at her beauty and brimming with pride 
that other men may think they were together as he carried her bag for her through town. Tonight, we pick up with the Ramses enjoying their afternoon, the children playing cricket on the lawn, the men walking up and down the terrace, and Mrs. Ramsey with James, remembering to keep her head tilted just so for Lily Briscoe's painting. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 1 The Window Chapter 4 Indeed, he almost knocked her easel over, coming down upon her with his hands, waving, shouting out, Boldly we rode and well. But mercifully, he turned sharp and rode off, to die gloriously, she supposed upon the heights of Balaclava. Never was anybody at once so ridiculous and so alarming. But so long as he kept like that, waving, shouting, she was safe. He would not stand still and look at her picture, and that was what Lily Briscoe could not have endured. Even while she looked at the mass, at the line, at the colour, at Mrs. Ramsay sitting at the window with James, she kept a feeler on her surroundings, lest someone should creep up and suddenly she should find her picture looked at. But now, with all her senses quickened as they were, looking straining till the colour of the wall and the jack manor beyond burnt into her eyes. She was aware of someone coming out of the house, coming towards her, but somehow divined from the footfall William Banks, so that though her brush quivered, she did not, as she would have done had it been Mr. Tansley, Paul Rayleigh, Minta Doyle, or practically anybody else, turn her canvas upon the grass, but let it stand. William Banks stood beside her. They had rooms in the village, and so walking in, walking out, parting late on doormats, had said little things about the soup, about the children, about one thing and another, which made them allies so that when he stood beside her now in his judicial way, he was old enough to be her father too, a botanist, a widower, smelling of soap, very scrupulous and clean. She just stood there. He just stood there. Her shoes were excellent, he observed. They allowed the toes their natural expansion. Lodging in the same house with her, he had noticed, too, how orderly she was. Up before breakfast and off to paint, he believed alone. 
poor, presumably, and without the complexion or the allurement of Miss Doyle, certainly, but with a good sense which made her, in his eyes, superior to that young lady. Now, for instance, when Ramsay bore down on them, shouting, gesticulating, Miss Briscoe, he felt certain, understood. Someone had blundered. Mr. Ramsay glared at them. He glared at them without seeming to see them. That did make them both vaguely uncomfortable. Together, they had seen a thing that they had not been meant to see. They had encroached upon a privacy. So, Lily thought, it was probably an excuse of his for moving, for getting out of earshot, that made Mr. Banks almost immediately say something about its being chilly and suggested taking a stroll. She would come, yes, but it was with difficulty that she took her eyes off her picture. The Jack Manor was bright violet. The wall staring white. She would not have considered it honest to tamper with the bright violet and the staring white, since she saw them like that, fashionable though it was, since Mr. Pornsfort's visit to see everything pale, elegant, semi-transparent. Then beneath the colour, there was shape. She could see it all so clearly, so commandingly, when she looked. It was when she took her brush in her hand that the whole thing changed. It was in that moment's flight between the picture and her canvas that the demons set on her who often brought her to the verge of tears and made this passage from conception to work as dreadful as any down a dark passage for a child. She often felt herself struggling against terrific odds to maintain her courage to say, This is what I see. This is what I see. And so to clasp some miserable remnant of her vision to her breast, to thousand forces did their best to pluck from her. And it was then, too, in that chill and windy way, as she began to paint, that there forced themselves upon her other things, her own inadequacy, her insignificance, keeping house for her father off the Brompton Road. It had much ado to control her impulse to fling herself, thank heaven she had always resisted so far, at Mrs. Ramsay's knee and say to her, but what could one say to her? I'm in love with you? Well, no, that wasn't true. I'm in love with this all, waving her hand at the hedge, at the house, at the children. It was absurd. It was impossible. So now she laid her brushes neatly in the box, side by side, and said to William Banks, Suddenly gets cold. Sun seems to give less heat, she said, looking about her, for it was bright enough, the grass still a soft, deep green, the house 
starred in its greenery with purple passion flowers and rooks dropping cool cries from the high blue. But something moved, flashed, turned a silver wing in the air. It was September after all, the middle of September and past six in the evening. So off they strolled, down the garden in the usual direction, past the tennis lawn, past the pampas grass, to that break in the thick hedge, guarded by red-hot pokers, like braziers of clear burning coal, between which the blue waters of the bay looked bluer than ever. They came here every evening, drawn by some need. It was as if the water floated off and set sailing thoughts which had grown stagnant on dry land and gave to their bodies even some sort of physical relief. First, the pulse of colour flooded the bay with blue, and the heart expanded it and the body swam, only the next instant to be checked and chilled by the prickly blackness on the ruffled waves. Then, up behind the great black rock, almost every evening spurted irregularly, so that one had to watch for it, and it was a delight when it came, a fountain of white water, And then, while one waited for that, one watched on the pale semicircular bench, wave after wave, shedding again and again, smoothly, a film of of mother-of-pearl. They both smiled, standing there. They both felt a common hilarity, excited by the moving waves, and then by the swift cutting grace of a sailing boat, which, having sliced a curve in the bay, stopped, shivered, let its sails drop down, and then, with a natural instinct to complete the picture, after this swift movement, both of them looked at the dunes far away, and instead of merriment, felt overcome by some sadness because the thing was completed partly, and partly because distant views seemed to outlast by a million years, Lily thought, the gazer, and to be communing already with a sky which beholds an earth entirely at rest. Looking at the far sandhills, William Banks thought of Ramsay, thought of a road in Westmoreland, thought of Ramsay striding along a road by himself, hung round with that solitude which seemed to be his natural air. But this was suddenly interrupted. William Banks remembered, and this must refer to some actual incident, by a hen straddling her wings out in protection of a covey of little chicks upon which Ramsay, stopping, pointed his stick and said, Pretty, pretty. An odd illumination into his heart 
banks of thwarted, which showed his simplicity, his sympathy with humble things. But it seemed to him as if their friendship had ceased there, on that stretch of road. After that, Ramsay had married. After that, what with one thing and another, the pulp had gone out of their friendship. Whose fault it was, he could not say. Only after a time, repetition had taken the place of newness. It was to repeat that they met. But in this dumb colloquy with the sand dunes, he maintained that his affection for Ramsay had in no way diminished. But there, like the body of a young man laid up in peat for a century, with the red fresh on his lips, was his friendship, in its acuteness and reality, laid up across the bay among the sandhills. He was anxious for the sake of his friendship, and perhaps too in order to clear himself in his own mind from the imputation of having dried and shrunk, for Ramsay lived in a welter of children, whereas Banks was childless and a widower. He was anxious that Lily Briscoe should not disparage Ramsay, a great man in his own way, yet should understand how things stood between them. Begun long years ago, their friendship had petered out on a Westmoreland road where the hen spread her wings before her chicks. After which, Ramsay had married, and their paths lying different ways, there had been, certainly for no one's fault, some tendency, when they met, to repeat. Yes, that was it. He finished. He turned from the view. And turning to walk back the other way, up the drive, Mr. Banks was alive to things which would not have struck him had not those sandhills revealed to him the body of his friendship, lying with the red on its lips, laid up in pink. For instance, Cam, the little girl, Ramsay's youngest daughter. She was picking sweet Alice on the bank. She was wild and fierce. She would not give a flower to the gentleman, as the nursemaid told her. No, 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 she would not. She clenched her fist. She stamped. Mr. Banks felt aged and saddened and somehow put into the wrong by her about his friendship. He must have dried and shrunk. The Ramses were not rich, and it was a wonder how they managed to contrive it all. Eight children to feed eight children on philosophy. Here was another of them, Jasper this time, strolling past to have a shot at a bird, he said nonchalantly, swinging Lily's hand like a pump handle as he passed, which caused Mr. Banks to say bitterly how she was a favourite. There was education now to be considered, 
True, Mrs. Ramsay had something of her own, perhaps, let alone the daily wear and tear of shoes and stockings, which those great fellows, all well-grown, angular, ruthless youngsters, must require. As for being sure which was which, or in what order they came, that was beyond him. He called them privately after the kings and queens of England. Cam, the wicked, James, the ruthless, Andrew, the just, Prue, the fair. For Prue would have beauty, he thought. How could she help it? And Andrew brains. While he walked up the drive, and Lily Briscoe said yes and no and capped his comments, for she was in love with them all, in love with this world. He weighed Ramsay's case, commiserated him, envied him, as if he had seen him divest himself of all those glories of isolation and austerity which crowned him in youth, to cumber himself definitely with fluttering wings and clucking domesticities. They gave him something, William Banks acknowledged that. It would have been pleasant if Cam had stuck a flower in his coat, or clambered over his shoulder, as over her father's, to look at a picture of Vesuvius in eruption. They had also, his old friends could not but feel, destroyed something. What would a stranger think now? What did this Lily Briscoe think? Could one help noticing that habits grew on him? Eccentricities, weaknesses perhaps. It was astonishing that a man of his intellect could stoop so low as he did. That was too harsh a phrase. Could depend so much as he did upon people's praise. Oh, but said Lily. Think of his work. Whenever she thought of his work, she always saw clearly before her a large kitchen table. It was Andrew's doing. She asked him what his father's books were about. Subject and object and the nature of reality, Andrew had said. And when she said, heavens, she had no notion what that meant. Think of a kitchen table, then, he told her, when you're not there. So now, she always saw, when she thought of Mr. Ramsay's work, a scrubbed kitchen table. It lodged now in the fork of a pear tree, for they had reached the orchard. And with a painful effort of concentration, she focused her mind, not upon the silver-bossed bark of the tree, or upon its fish-shaped leaves, but upon a phantom kitchen table. One of those scrubbed board tables, grained and knotted, whose virtue seems to have been laid bare by years of muscular integrity, which stuck there, its four legs in the air. Naturally, if one's days were passed in this seeing of angular essences, this reducing of lovely evenings, 
with all their flamingo clouds in blue and silver to a white deal four-legged table, and it was a mark of the finest minds to do so. Naturally, one could not be judged like an ordinary person. Mr. Banks liked her for bidding him think of his work. He had thought of it often and often. Times without number, he had said. Ramsay is one of those men who do their best work before they are forty. He had made a definite contribution to philosophy in one little book when he was only five and twenty. What came after was more or less amplification, repetition. But the number of men who make a definite contribution to anything whatsoever is very small, he said, pausing by the pear tree, well brushed, scrupulously exact, exquisitely judicial. Suddenly, as if the movement of his hand had released it, the load of her accumulated impressions of him tilted up and down poured in a ponderous avalanche all she felt about him. That was one sensation. Then up rose in a fume the essence of his being. That was another. She felt herself transfixed by the intensity of her perception. It was his severity, his goodness. I respect you, she addressed silently him in person, in every atom. You are not vain. You are entirely impersonal. You are finer than Mr. Ramsey. You are the finest human being that I know. You have neither wife nor child. Without any attraction, she longed to cherish that loneliness. You live for science. Involuntarily, sections of potatoes rose before her eyes. Praise would be an insult to you. Generous, pure-hearted, heroic man. But simultaneously, she remembered how he had bought a valet all the way up here, objected to dogs on chairs, would prose for hours until Mr. Ramsay slammed out of the room about salt in vegetables and the iniquity of English cooks. How then did it work out, all this? How did one judge people, think of them? How did one add up this and that and conclude that it was liking one felt or disliking? And to those words, what meaning attached after all? Standing now, apparently transfixed by the pear tree, impressions poured in upon her of those two men, and to follow her thought was like following a voice which speaks too quickly to be taken down by one's pencil, and the voice was her own voice, saying without prompting undeniable, everlasting, contradictory things, so that even the fissures and the humps on the bark of the pear tree were irrevocably fixed there for eternity. 
You have greatness, she continued, but Mr. Ramsay has none of it. He is petty, selfish, vain, egotistical. He is spoiled. He is a tyrant. He wears Mrs. Ramsay to death, but he has what you, she addressed Mr. Banks, have not. A fiery unworldliness. He knows nothing about trifles. He loves dogs and his children. He has eight. Mr. Banks has none. Did he not come down in two coats the other night and let Mrs. Ramsay trim his hair into a pudding basin? All of this danced up and down like a company of gnats, each separate but all marvelously controlled in an invisible elastic net, danced up and down in Lily's mind, in and about the branches of the pear tree, where still hung in effigy the scrubbed kitchen table, symbol of her profound respect for Mr. Ramsay's mind, until her thought, which had spun quicker and quicker, exploded of its own intensity. She felt released. A shot went off close at hand, and there came, flying from its fragments, frightened, effusive, tumultuous, a flock of starlings. Jasper, said Mr. Banks. They turned the way the starlings flew over the terrace. Following the scatter of swift, flying birds in the sky, they stepped through the gap in the high hedge, straight into Mr. Ramsay, who boomed tragically at them. Someone had blundered. His eyes, glazed with emotion, defiant with tragic intensity, met theirs for a second and trembled on the verge of recognition. But then, raising his hand halfway to his face as if to avert, to brush off, in an agony of peevish shame their normal gaze, as if he begged them to withhold for a moment what he knew to be inevitable, as if he impressed upon them his own childlike resentment of interruption, yet even in the moment of discovery was not to be rooted utterly, but was determined to hold fast to something of this delicious emotion, this impure rhapsody of which he was ashamed, but in which he reveled. He turned abruptly, slammed his private door on them, and Lily Briscoe and Mr. Banks, looking uneasily up into the sky, observed that the flock of starlings, which Jasper had rooted with his gun, had settled on the tops of the elm trees. Chapter 5 and even if it isn't fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay, raising her eyes to glance at William Banks and Lily Briscoe as they passed, it will be another day. And now, she said, thinking that Lily's charm was her eyes, but it would take a clever man to see it. And now stand up and let me measure your leg. For they might go to the lighthouse after all, 
and she must see if the stocking did not need to be an inch or two longer in the leg. Smiling, for it was an admirable idea that had flashed upon her this very second, William and Lily should marry. She took the heather mixture stocking with its crisscross of steel needles at the mouth of it and measured it against James's leg. My dear, stand still, she said, for in his jealousy, not liking to serve as a measuring block for the lighthouse keeper's little boy, James fidgeted purposely. And if he did that, how could she see? Was it too long? Was it too short? she asked. She looked up. What demon possessed him, her youngest, had cherished, and saw the room, saw the chairs, thought them fearfully shabby. Their entrails, as Andrew said the other day, were all over the floor. But then what was the point, she asked, of buying good chairs to let them spoil up here all through the winter, when the house with only one old woman to see to it, positively dripped with wet. Never mind. The rent was precisely twopence halfpenny. The children loved it. It did her husband good to be three thousand, or if she must be accurate, three hundred miles from his libraries and his lectures and his disciplines, and there was room for visitors. Mats, camp beds, crazy ghosts of chairs and tables whose London life of service was done. They did well enough here, and a photograph or two, and books. Books, she thought, grew of themselves. She never had time to read them. Alas, even the books that had been given her and inscribed by the hand of the poet himself for her whose wishes must be obeyed, the happier Helen of our days. Disgraceful to say, she had never read them. At a certain moment, she supposed, the house would become so shabby that something must be done. If they could be taught to wipe their feet and not to bring the beach in with them, that would be something. Crabs, she had to allow, if Andrew really wished to dissect them, or if Jasper believed that one could make soup from seaweed, one could not prevent it. Or Rose's objects, shells, reeds, stones, for they were gifted, her children, but all in quite different ways. And the result of it was, she sighed, taking in the whole room from floor to ceiling, as she held the stocking against James's leg, that things got shabbier and got shabbier summer after summer. The mat was fading. The wallpaper was flapping. Couldn't tell any more that those were roses on it. Still, if every door in a house is left perpetually open and no lockmaker in the whole of Scotland can mend a bolt, things must spoil. What was the use of flinging a green cashmere shawl over the edge of a picture frame? In two weeks, it would be the colour of pea soup. But it was the doors that annoyed her. 
every door was left open. She listened. The drawing room door was open. The hall door was open. It sounded as if the bedroom doors were open, and certainly the window on the landing was open, for that she had opened herself. That windows should be open and doors shut. Simple as it was, could none of them remember it. She would go into the maids' bedrooms at night and find them sealed like ovens, except for Marie's, the Swiss girl, who would rather go without a bath than without fresh air. But then at home, she had said, the mountains are so beautiful. She had said that last night, looking out of the window with tears in her eyes. The mountains are so beautiful. Her father was dying there, Mrs. Ramsay knew. He was leaving them fatherless, scolding and demonstrating how to make a bed, how to open a window with hands that shut and spread. All had folded itself quietly about her when the girl spoke, as after a flight through the sunshine, the wings of a bird fold themselves quietly and the blue of its plumage changes from bright steel to soft purple. She had stood there, silent, for there was nothing to be said. He had cancer of the throat. At the recollection, how she had stood there, how the girl had said, at home the mountains are so beautiful, and there was no hope no hope whatever. She had a spasm of irritation, and speaking sharply said to James, Stand still, don't be tiresome, so that he knew instantly that her severity was real, and straightened his leg and she measured it. The stocking was too short by half an inch at least, making allowance for the fact that Sawley's little boy would be less well-grown than James. It's too short, she said. Ever so much too short. Did anybody ever look so sad? Bitter and black, halfway down in the darkness, in the shaft which ran from the sunlight to the depths. Perhaps a tear formed. A tear fell. The waters swayed this way and that, received it, and were at rest. Never did anybody look so sad. But it was nothing but looks, people said. What was there behind it? Her beauty and splendor? Had he killed himself, they asked. Had he died the week before they were married? Some other, earlier lover of whom rumours reached one. Or was there nothing? Nothing but an incomparable beauty which she lived behind and could do nothing to disturb. For easily, though, she might have said at some moment of intimacy when stories of great passion of love, foiled, of ambition, thwarted, came her way. How she too had known or felt, or been through it herself, she never spoke. She was silent, always, 
She knew then. She knew without having learned. Her simplicity fathomed what clever people falsified. Her singleness of mind made her drop plumb like a stone. A light, exact as a bird, gave her naturally this swoop and fall of the spirit upon truth, which delighted, eased, sustained, falsely perhaps. Nature has but little claim, said Mr. Banks once, much moved by her voice on the telephone, though she was only telling him a fact about a train, like that of which she moulded you. He saw her at the end of the line, Greek, blue-eyed, straight-nosed. How incongruous it seemed to be telephoning to a woman like that, the graces assembling seemed to have joined hands in meadows of asphodel to compose that face. Yes, he would catch the 10.30 at Euston. But she's no more aware of her beauty than a child, said Mr. Banks, replacing the receiver and crossing the room to see what progress the workmen were making with an hotel which they were building at the back of his house. And he thought of Mrs. Ramsay as he looked at that stir among the unfinished walls. For always, he thought, there was something incongruous to be worked into the harmony of her face. She clapped a deerstalker's hat on her head. She ran across the lawn in galoshes to snatch a child from mischief that if it was her beauty merely that one thought of, one must remember the quivering thing, the living thing. They were carrying bricks up a little plank as he watched them, and work it into the picture. Or if one thought of her simply as a woman, one must endow her with some freak of idiosyncrasy. She did not like admiration, or suppose some latent desire to doff her royalty of form as if her beauty bored her and all that men say of beauty. And she wanted only to be like other people, insignificant. He did not know. He did not know. He must go to his work. Knitting her reddish-brown, hairy stocking with her head outlined absurdly by the gilt frame. The green shawl, which she had tossed over the edge of the frame, and the authenticated masterpiece by Michelangelo. Mrs. Ramsay smoothed out what had been harsh in her manner a moment before, raised his head, and kissed her little boy on the forehead. Let us find another picture to cut out, she said. 